10th of April, 1993, you'd find me sitting by my father's bed as he drew his final breath. He'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer about 18 months previously. And now it had reached its inevitable conclusion. His body had been shutting down over the previous week, and now his gaunt frame shuddered a final time with the death rattle. It's a memory that remains with you. And others here will have passed through similar experiences, and it's an emotion that you'll never forget. For death is a terrible thing. It's an unnatural thing. It's a horrifying thing. And although the raw reality of confronting death was a more common experience in Middle Eastern life 2,000 years ago, the sight of an innocent man, weakened by torture, deserted by friends, and experiencing the dreadful agony of death by crucifixion was somber in the extreme. Yet Matthew invites us in to witness the scene. And he directs our attention to three pairs of events that took place at the cross. And it's as we get them, as we understand the deeper significance of what was going on, that we'll come to grasp that this was nothing less than the focal point of world history. This was the greatest event ever witnessed. This was the most significant act that you could ever respond to. For respond you must, in one way or another. Let's take the first of those two, uh, three pairs. First of all, we notice there are two unimaginable cries from the cross. There are two unimaginable cries from the cross. And I use that word, unimaginable, carefully and deliberately. You see, it's an impossible task to adequately convey what Jesus was going through as he hung on that cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And I'm not talking about the physical agony as every nerve and sinew screamed and as the body fought for every breath until there was no strength left and the victim died of asphyxiation. No, I'm, I'm talking about something far, far more extreme into which we can hardly enter. For there on that cross, Jesus was taking upon himself the hellish judgment from an infinitely holy God for the sins of people like you and me. Actually, that's what Matthew is hinting at when he points to the darkness that covered the land from noon for three hours. It was a picture of God's judgment. It would have been familiar to his Jewish 
readers from their readings of Exodus and Amos, they understood what was going on at that time. And there on that cross, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, they'll be on screen, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Or to use the words of the Apostle Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You see, like a magnifying glass, gathering the sun's rays and concentrating them in one spot, so God's holy wrath, God's just anger for all his people's sins was focused down in burning intensity upon the only person who didn't deserve it. For he, for Jesus, was the one eternally united with God the Father. He was the one who'd constantly been praying to God as Abba, Father. He was the one who had known intimacy, unbroken intimacy with the Godhead. But now, but now, a cry erupts from his mouth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no sense of God's love here or God's presence. No sense for Jesus of his own divine sonship. No answer to his torment. No words to bring him comfort. Just the silence of heaven and the derision of the crowds. Isaac Watts tried to capture this in a hymn. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And after uttering that most awful of cries, someone pushes a wine-soaked sponge up to Jesus' lips. We're not sure whether it was a continuation of the cruel mockery that had surrounded his execution or whether it was a genuine expression of concern. We don't know. But what we do know is this. With a moistened mouth, Jesus loudly cried out again. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what this cry was. In fact, he only records one of the seven sayings that came from Jesus on the cross. But when we look at John's account in his gospel, it's most likely that this was the cry when Jesus declared, It is 
Finished. In the Greek, it is one word, tetelestai. This wasn't the whimper of a defeated character. This was the triumphant statement of a conquering king. In fact, the words that Jesus used was also a technical term that was commonly used in relation to paying tax. Numerous bills and receipts have been found from this period over which have been stamped the words tetelestai, paid for. So Christ's cry from the cross could also legitimately be translated not only as it's finished, but it had the sense it is completely paid for. For six hours he'd hung there. Whilst hanging there, he'd endured God's anger upon himself for the sins of others. While there, he'd known what it was to be separated from his heavenly Father. He'd known what it was to experience the hell of God's justice. But it had been completed. The price had been paid. All that needed to be done to rescue sinners had been accomplished. All the pictures and prophecies down through the millennia of old, the Old Testament had been fulfilled. And so echoed around Skull Hill that triumphant cry. It's finished! And my friends, that same cry still resounds around the world today. It is done. It's been fulfilled. It's been accomplished. It's been paid for. There is nothing to add to the work of Jesus. And with his work done, Jesus, we're told, then gave up his spirit. Actually, Matthew doesn't use the usual expression meaning to die. Rather, this has the sense of a king voluntarily dismissing his spirit, completely in control, not the victim of circumstance. But as well as two unimaginable cries from the cross, secondly, there are two unmistakable effects of the cross. There are two unmistakable effects of the cross. Matthew puts it like this. Claire read it to us. At that moment, that is when Jesus died, when he dismissed his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Now, the curtain that is being referred to here by Matthew was the one between the holy place and the most holy place in that temple there in Jerusalem. It was an elaborately woven curtain. It was 60 feet high. It was 30 feet wide. Or to put it in new money, that was 18 meters high, 9 meters wide. It was a hand breadth deep. Now just to get some conception of it, that would be the width of this platform. And by this platform, I mean that platform and about the height of this ceiling. This massive, thick curtain. You see, what that curtain represented was, well, behind it was the most holy place. 
Behind it was the place that no one could go except the high priest. And then he could only go there once a year on the Day of Atonement. You see, on the other side of that curtain was the area that symbolized the very presence of God. So imagine the horror of the people, the priests gathered there in the temple when suddenly this massive curtain is torn from top to bottom. You see, the way to God had been opened up in the most symbolic manner possible. Jesus was the way. It was through him, not through religious rituals, that one could now approach God. Sin had been dealt with. What had separated us from God? Sin had been dealt with. Pardon had been provided. But my friends, not only did the cross work of Jesus bring about the death of religion, because that was the end of religion, with all its controlling rules and regulations, ways that you could meet, reach up to get to God. No, no, no. That was ended. The way had been opened. This actually also brought about the death of death itself. We're told the tombs broke open. Matthew even adds that after the resurrection, the bodies of some dead holy people appeared to folk in Jerusalem to underline this point. Now, look, there are lots of questions that this raises which we can't answer just because we're not told. But Matthew simply wants us to grasp this stunning truth, this glorious implication of the work of Jesus. Death is defeated. Jesus died in our place so that we don't need to die. Paul puts it like this. He says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, two unmistakable effects of the cross. The death of religion. The death of death. But finally, I want us to notice that there are two unexpected groups around the cross. There are two unexpected groups around the cross. You see, in this gospel, we've already noted that Matthew doesn't include unnecessary details in his gospel account. So we need to take note that he deliberately identifies two groups of witnesses. One is the Roman centurion and his detachment of soldiers. The other is a group of women, long-time followers of Jesus who'd been watching events at a distance. And they both serve a purpose in this historical account. The soldiers were witnesses of Christ's death. They saw that he died. He, he really died. And they were witnesses of all the events of that cruci crucifixion. They were there when just a few hours before, the religious leaders had been mocking Jesus. And in verse 43 of this chapter, uh, this is what they heard, these religious leaders, as they gathered around the, this broken, tortured body. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And now, 
those battle-hardened soldiers, having witnessed all the signs surrounding the cross, having heard all the words spoken from the cross, having witnessed the demeanor of the Savior, testify in no uncertain terms. They say, Matthew records it for us, surely he was the Son of God. Surely he was the Son of God. And the women are there, providing a neat bridge into the astounding events that will take place two days later. When going to anoint Christ's body with the usual aromatic spices, they discover the stone rolled away from the entrance to the tomb, and they become the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection. But there's a deeper underlying reason why Matthew includes them in his account. You see, they're there because both groups represent outsiders and outcasts. See, there's the despised soldiers. They were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. They were the dogs who were excluded from the temple worship. How ironic that the first one to acknowledge the true character of the crucified Jesus after his death is not who you'd expect. It's not someone who was waiting for the promised Messiah. It was a despised officer from an occupying army. And in that patriarchal society where Jewish men regularly thanked God in their prayers that they hadn't been born a woman, it is the women who are identified as faithful followers of Christ. The male disciples had deserted the scene. The women remained. And this isn't an accidental detail. It's central to the whole teaching of the New Testament. It's that the work of Jesus accomplished there on Calvary's cross was to save and rescue outsiders and outcasts. And if you feel that you're in that category, then this is the very best news that you could hear. You see, I think one of Satan's biggest lies is that the Christian message is for good people, decent people, moral people, people who have their lives together, shiny, happy, well-balanced people. That's a lie. Whereas the invitation to new life, to forgiveness, to adoption into God's family comes to people who are broken and messed up. People who feel on the outside. People who struggle with shame and guilt. People who have history. People who couldn't live by their own rule books, let alone God's. People who feel weary just holding on. People who feel excluded. And this morning, I invite you to draw closer to the cross. You see, it's for you. 
And I invite you to be done with the idea that you can make it through religion and your own efforts. I invite you to get rid of this lie that that somehow you're okay because you do religion, because you've had this done to you or that done to you, or because you're a moral person. Look, when you go to the cross and the events of the cross and the ripping of the temple, you see, my friends, it is not religion that can save you. There is only one, and his name is Jesus. And I invite you, if you feel crushed by that sense of guilt and shame and failure, for there on the cross, Jesus took what sinners deserve so that you don't have to. Will you come? Will you come to the cross Even this morning, what is it that keeps you away from Jesus? What is it that says to you, you don't need to be there. You don't need to be kneeling at the foot of the cross. You don't need to be gazing at the maker of the universe dying there in the place of sinners. In a moment or two, we're going to sing a song. Let me just read the words to you before we do. It's an old hymn but its words are good, O love divine. What have you done? The immortal God has died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me has died. My Lord, my love, is crucified. Look on him. All you passing by, the wounded prince of life and peace. Come sinners, see your maker die and say, was ever grief like this? Come feel with me, his blood applied. My Lord, my love, is crucified. Is crucified for me and you to bring us rebels back to God. Believe, believe the record true. Our lives are bought with Jesus' blood. Pardon for sin flows from his side. My Lord, my love, is crucified. Then let us sit beneath his cross and gladly catch the healing stream. For him, account all things but loss and give up all our hearts to him. Of nothing think or speak beside. My Lord, my love is crucified.